0: Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Our speaker for today is Arthur D. from Dallas, Texas. He's speaking from the Whiskey and Milk Group in Dallas, Texas, September 2018. And there's a short introduction by someone else. Here it goes.
1: Oh, man, I get the privilege of introducing Arthur Deller. Um, There's one part in the book that actually stands out when I think about Arthur, and it's on page 51. And it says that many hundreds show how the change came over them when... Um, With these hundreds of people, we're able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. They present a powerful reason why one should have faith. And um, I was probably about nine years sober when I met Arthur. And I had been, um, quote unquote, doing the deal of working these steps and sponsoring and going to H&I and... Helping lots of women and he looked at me one night and at Starbucks with some other people and he said, you don't know anything about God. And I felt hurt. Um, But the truth is, is I was doing a lot of doing and I wasn't doing a lot of trust and I wasn't being and relying on a power. And when it comes to this section on 51, I didn't know the consciousness of the presence of God in my own life and sat before me this man who um, he could say that that was the most important fact in his life. And I don't uh, doubt that that's true. Um, Arthur is a man of many words, but he also is, (laughs) he's also showing that with his feet. Um, When he talks, I listen. So I'm very, very excited to get To hear him tonight, and I'm so excited that you do.
2: Can you all hear me? (laughs) I'm a soft talker. Um, Thanks, Ashley. I almost started to cry. Damn. I don't cry often. I want to thank Wesley for asking me to come out here and tell my story. Thank you. Um, Before I start, there's only one reason I'm here anyway. It wasn't because Wesley asked me. It's because someone used Wesley to ask me to come here. And I trust that that voice who got me clean, freed me from the bondage of self, puts me standing here today. Um, I hope some of this stuff you you can really relate to. Take it away. Turn it on in your life and see what happens. So I'm going to bring that power into this room. We, we said that serenity prayer, but i got to bring it in. Okay. So, you know, someone asked me to come here and tell my story, and I was thinking about it today. Just briefly, I said, you know, this whole world is made of stories. We tell stories, and we're usually narrating our own story. And I usually have that voice inside my head that's telling me what's going on in my life rather than experiencing what's going on in my life. And I lived like that for my pretty much up until about 15 years ago. And I stopped buying that story. So what I'm going to ask you is not to believe a word I'm going to say, but to map your experiences to some of mine. And if they stick on that map, maybe some of the directions I can point out that I took, you guys can take. If not, you'll just enjoy me talking for an hour. So, I'm gonna condense my using part. Um, I'm a recovered, drug-addicted alcoholic. I love the taste of crack cocaine. I love the smell of cocaine Uh, immensely, even to this day. But something uh, happened to me. I laid down the letter of this law and let it go, and I picked up the spirit of it. And that only was through, initially it was through grace. And I talk about grace sometimes because it took grace to get me into these rooms, but they didn't keep me here. They protected me and got me here, and then it took some power to take over. You know, I understood what my problem was a long time before I walked in here. I just couldn't do anything about it. My problem was what everyone kept telling me. You're a dope fiend, You're a drug addict. I don't want you living here. I don't want you working here. Police usually confronted me and weren't the kindest, and I would usually mock them and say, you should have saw me how wasted I was last night. You're lucky you didn't catch me. And that was all ego, and it was all bullshit, really. So I'm going to get into the difference between letting go absolutely, utter defeat, abandoning myself, and what it looks like in a trusting and relying relationship on a power that absolutely used everything it possibly could to get me here. And I cooperated by using everything I possibly could to get me here, too. And I used everything I could to get here. So, single mom, five kids, welfare in five states. My dad's a safe robber. He's in prison all the time. I'm in orphanage, foster care, foster care, juvenile detention for two years. I'm on my own at 14. Never made it past the eighth grade. I take my first hit at 12 years old. Everyone else was like, are you high? Are you high? We're passing around this quart of Miller High Life, the shittiest beer you could probably drink at the time. I think it was 79 cents for that quart. And we're burning a joint. And I didn't feel high. I felt together. I felt peace. I felt like I can come out of my shell. I didn't feel afraid. I didn't care what you thought anymore. And that started uh, an every single day journey to get high again every single day. I, I can't remember when I stopped until I got separated from it a few times. So, I get out of there and, get out of juvenile detention. My mom ends up moving to Dallas and she moved in an unorthodox way. I come home from work. I'm working at a very young age in the city. And I lived up in Queens, New York, if you couldn't tell. And, I come home and everything's gone and there's a note saying I just can't handle it anymore. I was like, okay, this is... See, to me, that wasn't abnormal anymore. That was how things went. I usually got abandoned and rejected and I got used to that. I was robbing houses. I was protesting for the IRA and I'm not Irish. (laughs) Right? I have a mohawk and I'm pretty much batshit crazy. I'm actually in full flight from reality. I'm an outright mental defective. I can't differentiate true from false. And I didn't think so. I thought I did. I thought I knew what was going on. But I was driven by fear and I was scared. And I wanted to just be okay. And what happened was I have this idea in my life that if I could just get something outside of me to make it okay inside of me, I'm going to pursue that. And I tried a lot of things to do that especially this so that seeker in me used its attention to seek something in you so that you could give me the attention back and that felt good that felt good that filled another hole because i didn't get attention when i grew up i was a i was a lonely kid in a room of people you know i'm um, fast forwarding smoking crack holding a handgun an Ambien to try to come down doing hydrocodone to try to do something <laughs> and i had been smoking crack since before crack was out I was smoking it when it was uh, when we were free Basin back in 1984 I'm in New York I break my leg at Reunion Arena that predates anyone who only knows about American Airlines does anyone know about a Reunion Arena not many so I, I snapped my leg, and uh, they put me in the hospital. My, my buddy takes my motorcycle. Two months later, I stick it in a trailer and drive up to New York. I've got a cast up to here. still got a mohawk. And um, I wiped that bike out on a bridge going from Staten Island to Brooklyn. The state trooper laughs at me and says, get up and go put your money back in the change plaza, the toll plaza. So I'm hobbling back there. He, I have to flip the motorcycle off me. He didn't help me at all. A week later, I sold it for a gram of I needed to, I needed to feel something different. Um, DWIs, lost marriages, blameless children, you know? I was doing everything that they said I would do. And guess what? None of that makes me an addict. Not one thing. 'Cause I know people that aren't alcoholics addicts have worse experiences than that. Worse consequences than that. I've been to jail for aggravated assault, assault, fine crack, public talks. It doesn't make me an addict. Yes. I can So what makes me an addict is that when I'm not on something, I wanna be. And I'm obsessed until I can get that candy. And I am freaking out inside. I'm tight. I'm wound. My chatter's loud. My gut is wrenched. My vibration level's high. And I'm not okay. And that thought repeats itself a hundred thousand times an hour. Just do another hit. And I can't anymore. I stopped using the drug. It was using me. It was using my life to feed off me. And so what had happened was I would then give in because I had no way I wasn't going to give in. I was too wound tight. I had to have that feeling released again like that first joint in that quarter beer when I was 12. And I couldn't get that feeling to go away. So what happened was right before I took that hit and during it, There was another voice going on. And it was the voice I wouldn't listen to. And it was my body saying, please don't take that. Please don't take that. Because the moment you take that, I'm taking off full speed. And here's what would happen. Check yourselves. If this maps to you, see if it worked. I would take that hit to shut the noise. My head would feel great and go, ah. And my body would fly out of the cage like a rabid dog. And I would be then on the streets... Hanging out at motels on Harry Hines and Dolphin and Samuel. Just, or, check this out. Or driving from Corpus to Dallas to buy crack. You can buy it six miles from Cor- in Corpus, man. But the idea hit me. Well, I, there's probably some better stones up here, you know. So I was on my way. But what happened at that point was now my mind was screaming, please don't take it. My body was saying, please go get it for me. That's what makes me an addict alcoholic. Not the things that happened to me. Not because mommy didn't hug me enough. I would have liked that. I didn't get it. But because when I'm not using and I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm not well, I'm wanting to get well. Who relates to wanting to get well? To feel okay. Well, the hard part is can I make that jump from that utter defeat to that full-on trust and reliance on a power? because that's the only way because every hit I ever took and every shot of dope I ever did and every drink I ever I mean, I'm telling you in hindsight I didn't know this going forward my God is believed through a rearview view mirror oh shit he did all that that's how I felt I couldn't see it coming and I couldn't trust it coming but I could see the protective nature that this power had over my life I could see the amount of times I was given more than I deserved and I wasn't given what I would, was deserving of which was probably a a lot of punishment and beatings. So there came a point, and I've been coming to recovery since 1986 when they made me come. They handed me a piece of paper with 32 signature slices on it, and they said, uh, this is a result of your DWI. go to DWI school and go to um, 32 meetings. I went to one meeting, and I realized I can get three or four different colored pens and pencils, and, and I filled it out in about seven minutes. And I waited a while, and I turned it in. No one ever said a word. Manage that. Got away with it. Didn't get harassed. Didn't have another problem with that. By the way, currently I was on eight years uh, deferred adjudication for an aggravated assault with intent to kill. And I flee the state, and so I had interstate felony flight from Texas. I end up in New York. I move to Delaware. In the middle of the night, I move out of Delaware. I'm, I was all messed up, and I moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm just running, man. I'm scared. I get popped by a drug task force in Ohio, and I got this 74 Dodge Dart with a brand-new BMW stereo in it so strange it had these dim lights in the dash and this bright orange square radio and they have us out on the snow at 3 o'clock in the morning on our faces and they go over everything pretty harsh and I go I'm going I'm going away for a long time I have this uh, felony charge on me and I ran and they didn't find it and I felt like that was a wake up call and I wrote the judge and I was savvy again trying to control everything I stuck the letter In another envelope mailed it to my mom and had her send it from New York so that they would not see the postmark coming from where I was. Um, I didn't have cell phone then. This was 86. And I I got reinstated and I got back here and it didn't get better. I was having dope sent to me from New York because cocaine was better up there because Colombians were bringing it in and Texas really wasn't getting good coke at the time. And so I'm free basing my own dope. And I can't stop, man. And I don't really want to. There's a eight to ten years of zero amount of income I earned during that time. I have three children, a wife, and zero income. I was using her. I was using society. And I wasn't growing up. See, and what really happened to me, fast-forwarding, was I had 11 years of recovery, but I didn't have one day of freedom. And that 11 years of recovery was done through, uh, through AA. And this time in, I had a sponsor tell me, please don't take offense to this. He said, addicts die in AA. I said, what do I do? He goes, well, go get a book. Because he said, you know the book better than me. He goes, go get a book, a brand new one. And I said, oh, cool, I'll go get one. Said, no, no, get a big one. I said, I don't want to carry a big one. I do not want to carry anything that, like, I do not want a billboard in my hand, you know? Mm-hmm. He goes, and I don't want anything in it, because I don't want you to read your highlights anymore. I want you to read it like it's a fresh, clean slate. And I want you to practice the set-aside prayer regularly, because what you know has kept you high for a very long time. And it keeps you from getting free. And he was right. And I didn't like hearing that. But I listened and I took it in and I internalized it I got into recovery my last night out was was horrific man I mean I blew 20 grand in a month after about five week run after a relapse Uh, the last night I have about $750 worth of dope three different types in three different piles. I'm I'm on Ambien, and I'm cooking dopes, smoking crack, and I'm making my own capsules of pure hydrocodone. And then I started snorting hydrocodone. And then I started thinking SWAT teams were coming. Anyone ever have that? I don't know why I thought that. Maybe the crack. <laughs> Just maybe. <man. laughs> But I'm standing there, and I'm pacing like a rabid dog, and I've got a pistol in my hand, and I've got another one in my drawer, and they're fully loaded, one in the chamber, safety off. And I think they're coming. For real. This time they're coming. See, every time they were coming, but they never showed up. And I was delusional enough to believe they're coming. But this time they were coming. And my smart ass thought, if I'm holding a gun, they ain't going to fuck with me. They're going to kill me. They're not even going to ask a question. I should have put that thing down, hit it under a pillow, or had them taken from me. My wife said, uh, what are you doing? She had never seen me high. Ever. And I was like, <laughs> I'm serious. Man. It was like Scarface. I was like... I have, my face was full of white and I was like oh, I have never felt this good and my eyes and the veins in my neck and I'm holding this pistol and she looked at me and she goes I'm scared and she left the bedroom and slept in the other room first time ever and I went at it all night all night long I did all that dope and I didn't want to I didn't want to do it anymore and I was being used to do that dope it was feeding. See, when they talk about we can be possessed of a new power, I was possessed of a different power that was using me to get high off of my life force, to wipe my family out, to destroy my career, to destroy everything I owned. You know, I'm a kid who came from a really bro- broken, messed up family, you know, hardcore, street living style, New York kid, and I had a life now. I had gained some stuff back. I gained a career. I had things and none of it was enough. You know, I was driving a fine European automobile. I had a double six figure job. And I would have thrown it all away for one speck of just a break. I didn't even want freedom. I just give me a fucking break, man. Inside, I was cratering. That night, I'm tweaking with my remote control that my friend set up my flat screen and sound system, and it ain't working. So, 1.30 in the morning, I'm texting. You know how it is? <laughs> Come fix this, bro. <laughs> it was It's 1.30. I said, I am not able to watch my flat screen with this remote. I can't get it to work. Just take the batteries out. Da-da-da. Needless to say, he goes, I'll come over tomorrow. I said, yeah, you need to do that, man. What time are you? He goes, 1 o'clock. I said, thank you. Well, I didn't sleep. I was up all night, ran the dope down, and around 10 in the morning, I was just about out. And I got scared. See, I had enough dope in me to kill two small children. But see, once the dope was running out, I wasn't high anymore, even though I was so high that... You know, I should have been hospitalized, right? I was so high. I was so high that every hit I did, I would lay on the floor listening for that same SWAT team to come in. I could hear their cars pulling up the street. You know, I was believing this. I was losing my mind, full flight from reality. And all of a sudden, I see this car pull up. I go, oh shit, and I was just about to split. It was Glenn to come to fix the remote. He's going to mess up my high. He opens the door. And I I wanted to say this, can you come back at one? I swear I wanted to say that because I needed to go out and get more. And instead I said, I've been smoking crack and I can't stop. And I was shaking. And all he did was grab me and he hugged me and my arms fell. And I just went, "Ah," and it was over. Right then, it was over. It was over. I knew it was over. He said, let's go to a meeting. And I said, yes. Yes, I, there was no more. I gave in right there. I was defeated. Did it look like I was defeated from the outside? Nope, not at all. I had a million dollars, a badass car. My house was pretty much paid for. Shit ton of stock. I had gave every single bit of it away at that moment. And something suspended me that, see, there was like that magic potion, grace, match with timing, match with that moment of clarity and that willingness. And it was that perfect combination. It didn't come easily. And I had to seize on that moment right then. There wasn't going to be another moment. See, if I missed that moment, that window, it could be years more because it was years for me because the moment I pick up, I don't hang around y'all. I go parallel universe. I, I live at night. I sleep all day. And eventually I pawn everything I own. And then everything you might own. If I come over. (laughs) You know? That Canon camera looks nice. I need to use your bathroom. And all of a sudden I have it. I'm not kidding. That's how I was operating. I go to a meeting. I walk into the place where I had 11 years, 10 years sobriety, spoke from the podium, shared at meetings, sponsored people. And I picked up that desire chip, and I was petrified to do it. I was broken. And my ego didn't have enough resistance that, that day to say, don't do that. Go pick up a chip at wham, you, no one knows you there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or any group. Just go pick up a chip somewhere else. I walked up, and I, people were floored, man, As I sat in the back seat where that homeboy in the gray t-shirt is. And I said, I squirreled my way all the way around, came up, and I got that desire chip, and people were blown away. Because they knew me. They didn't know I was high. And now they knew. And I knew. And something happened, though. And I say this, not many people you might notice, but that crash site right there, when I hit that morning... That was the launch pad for being rocketed into a new way of living. And it happened right from that spot. I didn't get to say, oh, man, that sucked. Ooh, let me get together a little bit. Let me get my life squared away. Let me get some time. Then I could take off from there. Nope, I didn't get a choice. Because what happened in that utter defeat, that absolute crushing blow I took, that doomed state understanding... Is I got introduced to a power because it was the grace that got me back. And that power occurred that moment. It literally changed me. I surrendered in two ways. I, I knew the drug had me. I knew the liquor had me. I knew the lifestyle had me, too, because I liked it. Man, I liked it. I don't know why I liked it. I don't, I don't know why I liked hanging out with dudes holding pistols. Inside of motel rooms. <laughs> that I didn't know. And who had names like player. <laughs> G, Friendly. I'm like, if we get pulled over, I got to know a real name. A real name. Someone give me a real name. And, oh, man, man, what you talking You know, that kind of thing. But something happened. Something happened that day. And I remember, I called Lisa. And I said, hey, I'm going to go to a meeting with Glenn. She, she goes, she, you are? Blew her away. She goes, are you serious? I said, yeah. And I went that night, and I came back, and I went the next night, and the next night, and I kept going. And I didn't want to go, but something wanted me to go. And I was cooperating now. See, I was cooperating with that power that possessed me to go get dope. I was doing whatever it wanted to, whenever it wanted to. At all times of the day and night, at the expense of everything that I held dear. <clears throat> and I get to Tuesday. This was a Friday. On a Tuesday, I walk in the firing line, <clears throat> which is wham, east.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I, I walk in there, and I walk up to this dude after the meeting. And I said, I need some help, man. I said. I didn't ask for a sponsor. I, and I said it with that same broken voice that I had when Glenn walked in. And this dude's sort of like an M- MMA guy, you know. He's one of the, we'll call him pillars of the group. Whatever that means. Don't be a pillar. <laughs> be a member. Sorry, that was my, my rant. He goes, what is it, bro? Is it pink or green? Don't want to offend. Is it Wait a minute, our money.
1: Huh?
2: And I said, no. He goes, you are on paper? You got legal problems? I said, no, man. He goes, what's wrong? And I swear this is, again, didn't need, I didn't want this to come out. I said, I don't have God, dude. I spoke that. And he looked at me. He goes, man, I usually like to watch guys for a couple weeks to make sure that they're serious. They are in meetings. They want to do the deal. I said, I that same cracked voice, I said, I don't have Two weeks, literally. And he said, come over. And we began to take a journey together. And I began to suspend ideas, ideas that were killing me. And I began to have incremental small moments of sanity return. They didn't land at one moment. The surrender moment happened, but I was just walking around this doomed groundless, where do I go kind of guy, point me and click me because I don't know what to do. I didn't yet have anything. I had a whole lot of knowledge about this book. I could like read full pages without looking at it. It was strange, but it wasn't helping me. It wasn't keeping me sober. And while sober, see, here's what happens. I go out and I come back in and I'm like, okay, I just need to stop using dope. I just need to stop shooting cocaine. I need to stop smoking crack. And see, and I get in and I stop that and I think, oh, good, I've stopped. That's good. Thank you, God, and I'm I'm okay now. What I need to find out is why do I keep starting again? And how do I keep from starting again and restarting again and restarting again in that cycle? And promising people with such a academy award-winning effect. You got to believe me this time when I don't even believe that I can do it. But i got a really good ability to convince you to believe that I'm going to stop this time. But it didn't work anymore. No one bought it. I went through the steps. He was a, a hands-off guy, though. He wasn't a micromanager. He didn't push me. He didn't have to. I actually tell guys I sponsor, I said, whenever they object or resist or rebel, I say, here's what you do. Call, call Doug. Just ask him anything. I'm not even going to fill your head with the thought to ask him. Just say, what was it like working with art? And you'll hear what he tells you. And I'll just challenge y'all to do that if you ever run into him, because I don't want to brag on myself. (laughs) Because I did anything, at any moment, with no resistance. He sends me 36 one-hour tapes. He goes, listen to these. And I only want you to write in the margin of your book in a black pen. You guys black pens that's it I listened to all 36 twice and I didn't take three months I began to listen to them with headphones on with a pen over like maybe a week I had nothing to lose except my life and that was pretty much gone so I did that a few months later I'm at his house, I'm writing inventory, wrote it, and I had my, I call it my second surrender. I'm sitting there, and I share with him inventory, we're looking at, revisiting, see, he's bouncing me from two to look how crazy I was, to three to look where I don't rely, and four, look what you do when you're out of alignment, look what you do when you, and I'm just seeing this, like, shell game, three-card money life, and I start realizing at my core, I am fucked. I am fucked. I, I, I literally turned to him. I said, "I'm gonna go. Um, I need to let her know to move." Because I had, now I had about four months sober, but I knew I wasn't gonna make it because I was still trying to stay sober on the unaided will. And I used Doug, and I had got that resource, and I said, "This guy." is a pillar, and he's going to help me, and he's got the answer, and he's going to use the book. But I was using the letter of the law. I was using the functions and the process of the program. But I wasn't using their intention, which was to connect me to a power greater than myself that will solve my problem. My problem is I'm self-centered and driven by fear. And I can't get out. And I tried. And I looked at objects. Objects would be things I could buy, people I could control or be controlled by. Uh, Shiny new things, rusty old things, whatever it took, something other than me to make me okay and something definitely other than a power greater than me to make me be okay. And that day was my second surrender in this program because I knew I was not going to make it. Was not going to make it and I wasn't using. And I didn't think about using. But I couldn't see how to break free from that selfishness that wrapped me in a cocoon and had me tightly in its grip. See, selfishness has billions of things at its disposal to, to bring me right back into the game. The power has one thing. Truth. And everything I kept looking outward at. See, and I was, I was always looking out, always looking out. Bill's story says, and this happened, I was inwardly reorganized. I had a new footing. My roots grasped a new soil. And I didn't know much about that. It's like entering that world of the spirit. My next function was to grow in effectiveness and understanding of that world. I didn't know what it was like. I had mental ideas. I heard what y'all said it was like. But I wasn't seeing anyone elevating above their problems that they told us we could do. Everyone was still... Slogging through quicksand talking about freedom (laughs) and I'm like this isn't what they mean this can't be what they mean because I won't make it if I walk that I'm not going to make it I'm not he said I want you to meditate twice a day five minutes a day okay I did that and I felt that was a little weak so I, I went to 20 a day twice a day because if five minutes would work 20 would be better just like dope right just like dope same effect looking for something and I remember nine months sober now and you know I told you guys I've been around since 86 but I had uh, since 93 this is great to like date myself there's probably 90 people born here in 93 are there? all <laughs> right 93. From 93 <laughs> till now, it's 25 years, and I have about 23 and a so 23 of them sober, with a lot of slices of getting wasted. And I knew it was going to happen again. Even though I'm meditating, even though I'm having these profound understandings, I knew something. I knew something was still missing. I knew it. And that's where no one could tell me what to do anymore. I had to start going inside. And I didn't want to. I wanted to look out. I wanted to perform for you, my sponsor, for, for you. I want you all to see what I shared, hear what I shared. But I wasn't having deep and effective spiritual experiences. So I'm, a, I, the irony, man, I smoke crack in my closet, even though I have a freaking huge-ass house. <laughs> And I found myself sitting in my closet writing nightly reviews and praying. And I laughed one day. I was sitting there and I go, this is incredible. I'm seeking God in the same place I smoke rock. And I was laying on my face when I prayed. I just laid straight out like a s- swimmer. Because I felt like I needed to. Knees weren't enough for humility for me. Just not going to bring me down far enough. And I remember laying there, and all of a sudden, at nine months sober, I get this inside feeling. It wasn't us audible, it was a feeling, and it said, It said this You believe in the process of recovery to keep you sober, and it is blocking you from my power. And I stopped right then. I remember calling my sponsor, I said, Nope, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. And it was scary. Please don't try this at home. (laughs) I worked the steps fanatically, wholeheartedly, just as prescribed. And I followed it to the letter of the law, and it was choking me out. I set it down, and I turned my face to the sun. And I said, okay, show me. That was a big risk for me. See, I had to let go of old ideas of using and old friends I hung with and old places I hung out with. Now I had to let go of the thing that got me nine months away from that last run. And that was petrifying. And I did it. I put it down. Still was going to meetings with sponsoring guys, working the deal, speaking when asked to. Part of the area commi- you know, committee, I think our social chair, and that was a blast. We had a good time. But that was the moment where I shifted from the many thousand on um, 50 to the many hundred. Because what I did is I let go of the most precious thing I could have at that moment, which was the freedom from the drugs that were killing me. And I didn't know if that was such a good idea, but I knew that I wasn't feeling the connection if I didn't let go on 85 they talk about some really powerful things and in 86 and on 87 they said we begin to trust this intuition this inspiration this insight that we gain and on 55, it says, we finally saw that the great reality was deep down within us. And I stopped looking outside anymore. And I started going in for everything. And I began to find things about myself, and it was painful. It made, let me tell you this it made my inventory look like a piece of crap. It made my inventory look like a joke. And I wrote a very, you know, we'll say, customized inventory. And it, and it was a joke. Because what I had never touched, what I had done, was I was superficially looking at the top of this table. This time I was boring through the wood. I was peeling it up. I was trying to find out what was really going on. I was getting to the root of my problem. And I was doing it inwardly. Meditation expanded. Spiritual understandings have expanded. And I began to hear myself talking in meetings or to people and realize those aren't my words that's not me and i would become as surprised at what i was speaking as the person listening to it and i began to realize that i was now a funnel and not a bucket that i wasn't here to acquire all these wonderful little trinkets and goodies like halloween candy and say look at what i've gotten when i got back home and pour them out on my bed and say this is my safety net I kicked my safety net out the window, and I don't have one today that's visible or mental. I have a safety net that wraps around me just like that dope did, but it isn't constricting the air out of me. It isn't choking on every in-breath and let, not letting me get that out-breath. It is my breath, and it did something in my life. That I promise you, it'll do for you. But here is the caveat there's ideas in the way. I'll guarantee it. Because if you'd have told me that that's what I had to do, see, I was looking, if I could do this, then I'll be. If I move here, then I'll be. And then if I, then I'll be. Dot, dot, dot. And it was never happening. I was never getting okay. I tried something new. When I let go of this viewpoint, when I let go of these opinions, when I drop this idea. And what's so interesting, and I say this a lot to people that are close to me, is what I'm describing to you is a thing that I say I found this. I didn't find it. I removed the things that were blocking it from being realized. It was always there. I challenge you to look within. It's there. But here's something interesting. I would give up. Even that idea, if I was prompted to, to go one more step further towards something I call the unknown, the mystery, and away from what is known, which is my insanity. Because if I'm tossing the idea around, it's in a broken washing machine. It's not ever coming out. And I don't want to wear it if it did. I'm fortunate. Um, I retired a year ago, a little over a year ago. I spend my days waiting for what's next. And honestly, this is sort of tricky. I don't leave until I get something from Central Casting to go perform. Because I suffer when I exert myself, project myself, and propel myself into my life and into your lives, I begin to hurt myself. I set balls in motion. And wisdom gained through that surrender says relax. Take it easy. Don't struggle so much. And the right thought will come. And all of a sudden people ask me to come speak. Good luck because I'll tell you this. I never know what I'm going to tell you never know. You can record these. I probably have 30 of these recordings in there. None of them are the same. None of them. You might hear about a mohawk. Maybe not. You might not. You might hear about me unplugging my kids' VCR while they're watching Lion King. You wouldn't have heard that today unless I had to go back and recall that. But you'll always hear this and hopefully, listen, get on this frequency right here. Hopefully you're feeling that feeling in this room right now. Because I do. If you don't, just quiet it a little more. It's right there. That's what is the presentation of what we have to offer. Not just freedom from alcohol and drugs, selfishness, and fear. All you've done is created just nothing. But the inclusion, the insight, the intuition... A reliance, being on that new footing when I sincerely made, took such a position to rely on that power. And I only take that position because I'm absolutely convinced and I've conceded to myself that I can't trust me no more. Can't. So listen to this if I can't trust me, please don't trust me. You feel me? Please don't. But if there's anything that I said tonight, if you can grok, if I bring you right back, we tie this all up, was you've heard a story. I asked you not to believe it, but I said, if you can wrap your experiences and tack them up on this map that I've presented to you and the journey I've taken. And if you can maybe see yourself or feel yourself, more importantly, having felt those feelings of just sheer despair, loss, hopelessness, and then... Going through it, struggling, grinding it out. It ain't working. I don't feel it. What am I going to do? And then you get a sense, maybe a whiff, a hint, that there's some freedom in what this cat's talking about. Grab it. I call it initially, it's just a thread, and it's real small. They call it a reed, a flimsy reed. That sounds weak. And I pull that thread and it just keeps getting... And all of a sudden, look, i got this pile of fucking yarn. And I keep getting more and more. It never ends what I'm getting out of this. And everything I've been given, which is nothing tangible, is to give it away to you. And I'd be remiss to stand here and to take anything from this. If I haven't poured myself out fully buried myself, exposed myself, become vulnerable enough, and emptied myself enough to allow the spirit of the universe and to sit on that tip of that spearhead of the ever-advancing creation of God's world, then I have not done a damn thing here. And if it has happened, I've also not done a damn thing here. Thank you.
0: people. I'm Fernando. I'm here. Fernando, I'm interviewing Shane today. And uh, he's going to tell me about his recovery date and how he he did the meditation meeting for years. And now he switched over to 10 years in archives. Yeah. So will you tell us about it? Will you introduce yourself as an alcoholic? I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. And my name is Shane. And uh, I haven't had a drink since my first meeting, and that was uh, December 18th, 1975. And when I was uh, sober, uh, 28 years, I a- attended a meeting in my District 30, which is uh, in the San Gabriel Valley area. and. Um, <coughs> The meeting I was going to, it didn't have a GSR, and uh, so they asked me to be the GSR, so I had to go to a uh, district meeting, and, oh, you dropped something. And um, so I went to the GSR meeting, and they said, hey, you know, we don't have an archivist. Let's do away with that position. And I said, you know, I'm interested in doing uh, history, the AA history. And they said, okay, you're the district archivist. So I was the archivist for two years and I loved it. And then the um, chairperson for Area 5, they noticed me and they said, would you be the archivist for the area, Area 5, which is uh, 440 square miles. So I said okay, so I was the archivist for Area Five and um uh, I got to travel all over not only Southern California but <clears throat> uh, I uh wound up traveling all over the United States. Uh hi doing, sir. Hi. I, I How went really? to uh making georgia and helena montana and philadelphia akron ohio Niagara falls and i just traveled for ten years uh, wherever they had uh... an archive workshop which they had once a year somewhere in the united states i wound up going for four days and so i got to meet a lot of people throughout the united states and archivists and a lot of people don't know but they, would ha- uh, they have an archive workshop four days somewhere in the United States every year, and there are um, archivists uh, in Canada and the United States, about 125 to 150 archivists, that although uh, we go to meetings, sponsor people, and that kind of stuff, in addition to that we live and breathe archives, that's all we do. And there's about 125 to 150 of us, and we communicate on the internet and through archive workshops, and uh, we normally attend conventions all over the United States, and and we share things that we accumulate, um, archive letters, and uh, like I've got uh, postcards that uh, uh, Lois Wilson used to send, and Christmas cards. and. And so I ask other archivists around the country, hey, have you got this postcard? And and I share it with other people, and they ask me, hey, Shane, have you got this letter or this photo? So we share stuff back and forth, and not only do we um, protect the letters and postcards and, and uh, memorabilia, but we also interview old-timers, people with 35, 40 years, and we uh, interview them, and put it on CD, or uh, uh, transcribe it onto um, paper, and then we put that in the archives. And uh, so we do a lot of stuff like that. And so I did that for, uh, for the area, Area 5, and there are 97 areas in the United States and a couple in Canada. So each area has an archivist, and they're supposed to be Every district within areas are supposed to have uh, an archivist, but a lot of districts don't because a lot of districts uh, don't support uh, archives they don 't see a value in an archivist so um, so um, um, so a lot of areas even even areas don't have an archivist so um, But anyway, even though I'm not formally an archivist anymore, I still do archive work on the side. And uh, actually, I'm here at this meeting today because I met someone at the last meeting, uh, Les. And uh, uh, Les and I, we have about the same uh, amount of sobriety. I think I have one week on him. And I said, Les, if you come, next week which is this week I said I'm the last person in AA that has the original newcomer chip like you guys hand out newcomer chips well how that started the newcomer chip was sister Anasia who was a Catholic nun worked with Dr. Bob um, in the hospital in Akron and when the drunks came through the detox center Uh, On their last days sister would give them what's called in Catholicism a scapula uh, sacred hearts Medallion and she would say Here is your chip. It's up to you to stay sober If you ever want to drink again, you must call me first But if you ever do drink again, you must come back and surrender this chip to me So that's how the newcomer chip started and um, That chip is made, actually, in a country called Belarus. Since um, Vladimir Putin started the war against Ukraine, uh, he got Belarus involved into it. And so that newcomer chip is no longer made. Um, They were being made and shipped to uh, Akron, to that hospital. And for years, I would call that hospital and say, hey, this is Shane, the archivist from L.A., can you send me 30 chips? And they had my credit card and home address on file, and they would say, okay, so they ding my credit card and uh, send me 30. So for years, oh, maybe 15, 20 years, I would hand those out sparingly because they were so valuable. And I wouldn't hand them to newcomers because they wouldn't appreciate it. But people with 25, 30 years, I would hand them this newcomer chip and uh, they would really appreciate it. Um, So I told Les, I said, if you come to this meeting, I'll bring one of those newcomer chips. And they're so rare that I'm the last person in AA that has them. So I said, Les, if you come, I'll bring one to, for you. This is the, new, the last of the newcomer chips. Ooh. So that's what Sister Anasia used to hand out uh, from 1947 to 1952. That's the original newcomer chip. Oh. So anyway, I still do a little bit of archives, but not formally. Is there a website that people can go to? Yes, there are several uh, AA uh, not only uh, uh, websites, but there are clubs like Yahoo.com. They have a, a group called AA History Lovers. You can go to AAHistorylovers.com.net. Um, let's see, there's there's several, and actually, I gave um, I had a website with uh, sheet with uh, with uh, web pages on it. That I gave to someone when I was here last week, uh, yes, but if you google aA um, history lovers uh, uh, websites you'll see a whole bunch of them come up and they're very interesting because you can get all sorts of AA history on there and then if you go to uh... a history dot you can go to the um, um, AA history uh, in New York because we have uh, a department, uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, in the history uh, in GSO and, and so the AA, um, the AA archivist is uh, Michelle um, Merzer in New York and uh, so there's all sorts of things that you can get involved with in AA history. So, um, good morning, sir. Oh, good morning, Bob. How are you? How are you? Fantastic. Good morning, good morning. So anyway, that's a little bit of the archives. Great. Thank you. You hit it over the fence. Hey there, hey. brother. Hey. Thank you so much. You're the <laughs>